Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 3rd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... The ACLU has filed a complaint against the city of Lexington over police allegedly abusing their power. Then, Mississippi's prison population is aging. A pattern experts say could point to a lack of re-entry options and ending sentencing, or rather extended sentencing, plus political signage and where it's not allowed. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The ACLU of Mississippi has filed a lawsuit on behalf of a Jackson resident against the city of Lexington and several city officials. They claim the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment rights of Javarius Russell were violated. He's an officer for the Jackson Public School District. This comes as several other lawsuits have been filed against the city for police corruption. A former police chief resigned when a racist voice recording was made public. Our Mike McEwen speaks with attorney Joshua Tom with the ACLU of Mississippi. So the stated purpose of the traffic stop and the arrest was that Mr. Russell had hit a police car with his ATV. He was placed in the back of, at the time, Chief Dobbins's patrol car on that basis. Some minutes later, another Lexington police officer came up, uh, saw Mr. Russell in the back of uh, Dobbins's car, and Dobbins said something to the extent of, yeah, I got the guy who hit the police car. And the other officer goes, uh, no, that's not him. You got the wrong guy. Uh, nonetheless, Chief Dobbins uh, proceeded to charge and jail Mr. Russell, various charges that you can see in the complaint. And he was jailed for several days over the long New Year's Eve weekend. Clearly, detaining and arresting somebody, uh, charges that you know to be false, is a violation of Mr. Russell's rights. And that's why, in part, we brought the lawsuit. And is there any evidence that the Lexington Police Department has brought forward proving that Javarius Russell did, in fact, run into a police car? No. Is it common, I guess, in your experience to where someone would be arrested for something like this and there would be no evidence for it? I'll say in this case, not only is there no evidence that Mr. Russell hit a police car, much less violated any other law, but there is the statement at the time of the other officer who said, that's not the guy. 
And something I'm wondering, I see that the city of Lexington is named in the complaint. Why is that? Well, in addition to uh, individual damages claims we're bringing against the officers who were involved in the detention and jailing of Mr. Russell, we also allege that uh, Lexington Police Department um, and the city of Lexington have a policy and practice, you know, various unconstitutional activity as detailed in the complaint. And so, you know, we're suing uh, the city over and the police department over those illegal policies and practices. And so in reference to other known complaints to the Lexington Police Department, would this lawsuit or the other lawsuit that's been filed in federal court alleging civil rights abuses, would they in any way have an impact on each other? Individual damages claims of Mr. Russell um, are, you know, separate and unique from any other lawsuits. Um, You know, to the extent that another lawsuit has raise the same allegations of um, specific policies and practices of the city of Lexington. And I'm not sure if they have or not, but to the extent that, you know, two separate lawsuits are making the exact same claims about certain policies and practices that Lexington may have, you know, presumably there, there could be some overlap. And something else I'm wondering, I know that the former Lexington police chief, Sam Dobbins, who's named in the lawsuit, He was fired or removed from his position by the Board of Aldermen last August um, Mm -hmm. for a racist tirade that you all mentioned in your press release. Why is the lawsuit being filed now, and why is he still named in it? The lawsuit's being filed now because this is when we are able to, you know, file the lawsuit. You know, filing lawsuits takes a lot of uh, background investigation, factual and uh, legal and this is just when we were able to do it, uh, number one. Number two, he's named because uh, he was the arresting officer. And he, I say Dobbins. Dobbins was the one who initially stopped Mr. Russell, who put Mr. Russell in the back of the police car, who continued to detain and jail Mr. Russell even after another officer told Dobbins that Dobbins had the wrong person. So, yeah, Dobbins is intimately involved in this, what we allege to be illegal activity. And so when was this specific case from Javarius Russell? When was that brought to the ACLU? Uh, We learned about this maybe last summer. I'm not exactly sure when. How much does the ACLU work with Jill Jefferson and with Julian, especially on the situation in Lexington? For the past, um, I guess since July of 2021, or June of 2021, which is either June or July when Dobbins was first uh, appointed uh, police chief in Lexington, to the present, you know, we've not consistently, but uh, at times quite closely, uh, we've worked with Jill. Why did that begin when Dobbins was first appointed? When Dobbins was first appointed was when the residents of Lexington started to have a lot of complaints, a lot of outcry about uh, the policing. And so, you know, we think that the unconstitutional uh, policies and practices of the Lexington Police Department began when uh, Sam Dobbins became chief. Could a ruling in either lawsuit, either the federal one filed by Jill Jefferson or the one filed by the ACLU of Mississippi, could a ruling in whichever one comes first impact upon a ruling in the one that comes after that? Uh, It's possible, and this is hypothetically, but to the extent that uh, both lawsuits allege that Lexington is engaged in the same illegal policy and practice, if uh, one judge says that that's been proven, 
you know, that could be persuasive to another judge that the same policy and practice at issue in their case should also be proven. Coming up, the state of Mississippi has an aging prison population far above the national average. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Connect with the people looking to connect with you. Become an underwriter with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. For more information, go to mpbonline.org slash more slash underwriting. What are the cool kids wearing nowadays? A bucket hat and fanny pack. I meant to say a belt bag. That's the 21st century name for it. You can get this MPB branded swag package by making a one-time $60 contribution. You'll also receive a year of PBS Passport to stream new and classic shows. A mix of current and classic. That's Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Make a contribution today at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi's prison population is aging at a rate above the national average. According to a new report from the Prison Policy Initiative based in Massachusetts, people over the age of 55 accounted for just 3% of Mississippi's prison population in the year 2000. Since then, that percentage has risen to 12%. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Mike Wessler, Communications Director for the Prison Policy Initiative. He says older people behind bars are not only a humanitarian issue, but also problematic for taxpayers. Many of the people that are older that are behind bars are the least likely to reoffend and be rearrested. And it raises important questions about why states are keeping elderly people behind bars for decades uh, without any considerations for public safety. And this also has additional taxpayer considerations. Uh, Older people are often uh, more expensive to incarcerate because they have complex health issues that require specialists. And they they face many of the same problems that um, elderly people on outside of the prison walls face, uh, except they're behind bars and all of the, the burden of those costs fall on the taxpayers. And often those health problems that they encounter um, are become worse because of subpar medical care that is available behind bars. Now, all of this is happening uh, during a backdrop where a lot of places have prioritized uh, rolling back some of the tough-on-crime policies that were implemented in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Uh, unfortunately, many of the rollbacks of those policies have not reached some of these folks who Uh, were incarcerated for really extreme sentences. And as a result, um, the number of people behind bars that are over the age of 55 continues to grow at at a pretty alarming rate. And Mike, talk to me a little bit about why the report found these older people were continuing to be incarcerated. Is it people that have been in the system for so long that they're growing older behind bars? Is it what kind of offenses are getting elderly people behind bars? Talk to me about the why we're seeing those numbers increase. Yeah, I think it's a slightly different for each state. But in a lot of southern states, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, uh, they've not 
experience what other states have. Those states haven't generally rolled back a lot of their tough on crime sentencing uh, laws. So they're really experiencing kind of the worst case scenario for older people in prisons. What I mean by that is not only do you have people who were arrested in the 90s and given really stiff sentences behind bars, so they're spending decades, if not the rest of their life, behind bars for uh, offenses that most people wouldn't consider lifetime offenses now. So they're getting older behind bars. But at the same time, we're finding that uh, more and more older people are also uh, experiencing homelessness. They're unhoused. And we know that people who are unhoused are more likely to be arrested and have interactions with law enforcement that result in them being behind bars. Similarly, uh, recent data has shown that people over the age of 55 are experiencing substance use disorder, alcohol and drug use disorder at a much higher rate than the rest of the population. And they have more interactions with law enforcement as well. And then finally, data has shown consistently for decades that people with mental health issues and cognitive disabilities, including cognitive disabilities like dementia, are also more likely to have interactions with law enforcement that result in them being behind bars. So I think these two factors, the over-policing and kind of the historical over-sentencing, has really caused the population of older people behind bars in these states uh, to really balloon out of control. And for a little bit of context, you know, Mississippi's portion of uh, people who are behind bars that are over the age of 55 has increased uh, four times over since uh, the year 2000. 12 uh, percent of people behind bars now in Mississippi are over the age of 55. Uh, in the year 2000, it was 3 percent. So that's a dramatic, dramatic shift in what it looks like behind bars and who's behind bars in, in Mississippi. And talk to me a little bit about extra challenges that those over 55 may face when trying to acclimate to life after prison? Yeah, we know that for anyone being released from prison, it's extremely difficult. You have to often uh, abide by considerable conditions of release, you know, meeting with parole officers or probation officers. Um, A lot of times that has to do with um, securing housing and securing jobs, things of that nature. But these are really amplified for older people. Not only do a lot of them not have strong family connections, many of them will have untreated mental health and substance use disorders. They'll often come from uh, impoverished backgrounds. They don't have people who can help them secure housing when they're released. And some of them are, are just too old to return to the workforce. So it makes their economic challenges even more difficult. And it's no secret that age discrimination happens to people without a criminal record. So those who are being released from prison face that sort of discrimination uh, twofold, so to speak, making it really hard for them to not only get a job, but to hold a job to afford some of their basic needs in their life. And one other thing that I really wanted to talk about, when looking over the report, it said something about how prison takes time off of your life. Can you kind of elaborate on where that data is pointing to what happens behind bars that really takes away our life force, basically? Yeah, prison is an inherently traumatic environment. I think there's a lot of folks who like to envision that you can make a a compassionate version of prison. And the data just shows that that's not true. Uh, being behind bars puts a, takes an immense physical toll because you often get subpar um, health care access. You get access to pretty bad 
food that doesn't really focus on nutrition. A lot of times just meeting a basic caloric intake is all that the prisons are focused on. And uh, anyone who has been to the doctor knows that your eating habits are, or kind of healthy eating habits are guided by more than simply a caloric intake. Not only that, it provides a significant toll on your mental health. I think it's important to kind of, for policymakers to ask themselves kind of what can be done to stem this tide. Because yes, there are people who are in prison who have lifetime sentences, but those sentences aren't written in stone. I think there's a couple of different strategies that policymakers can take at the state and local level to reduce the number of older people who are behind bars. First is instead of treating homelessness and substance use disorders and mental health issues as a criminal issue to, to resolve with policing, invest in things like housing, invest in mental health treatment, invest in substance use treatment that prioritizes health and well-being rather than incarceration. I think there's the ability for state lawmakers to retroactively apply sentencing reforms. You know, over the last decade or so, many states have reduced the length of sentences for a lot of drug-related crimes in particular, but those sentences don't apply to people who were convicted of the same crime in the 1990s. And those people, even if they're convicted for the exact same crime, will spend decades more in prison. And lawmakers should look at making those, those reforms retroactive. Uh, similarly, states should adopt things like presumptive parole. What that means is every person who is incarcerated is assumed to be eligible for parole through a certain length of time, whether it's 10 years or 15 years, some length of time, unless there's good reason to not give them parole. Currently, the way the system works is people have to prove their worthiness to parole. I think if folks believe that prisons are effective at kind of making sure that people don't commit future offenses, then they should assume that people after 10 years, 15 years, are ready to go back into the community. And uh, we should kind of flip our approach on its head a little bit to reduce the number of people behind bars. Mike Wessler is with the Prison Policy Institute in Massachusetts. Coming up, MDOT is reminding folks it's illegal to put political campaign signs next to highways. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org slash cartag. We'll see you on the road. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. What can you do with the MPB radio app? Listen live, hear local news, view the schedule, make a contribution, listen to shows on demand, and interact with social media. Get the app for your smartphone now. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi does not allow any signs to be posted in the right-of-way along the state highways. Political campaigns are gearing up for the election, the primary election, next Tuesday. And Mississippi Department of Transportation is reminding folks that rule applies to political signs as well. Michael Flood is with the Mississippi Department of Transportation, and he speaks with our Kobe Vance about where campaign signage is allowed. This is something we we try and get word out about every year. Um, We've got a a major issue in our state, a major problem in our state, a litter problem that uh, costs our state $3.2 million a year. And uh, it really just kind of spoils uh, our state's natural beauty. So there's a there's a, a section uh, 63-3-317 in the Mississippi Code of 1972 that states that campaign signs are not permitted within right of way along state highways. And MDOT is charged with maintaining these right of ways. You know, it is our responsibility to to keep them clear, distraction free. You know, this time of year, we just we just take that time to remind uh, candidates and everyone else uh, to please keep these areas of roadway, uh, our right of way, clear of distractions and campaign signs. And we have a process that we we go about getting those picked up. But uh, those are illegally placed signs if they are in MDI right of way, and they will be removed. If people do want to put signs up, where are the safe places they can put, and where are the lines that they should draw saying we can't put it there? Uh, so, you know, candidates are free to, to place their signs um, wherever it's legal. We we don't allow signs that are uh, in our right-of-way. And typically, um, typically the right-of-way, it is larger um, near roadway intersections. But uh, a good rule of thumb um, for most, I mean, it varies all over the state. Every road is different. But a good rule of thumb is 30 to 50 feet uh, out from the center line of a highway. So that's on e- in each direction to the right and the left. 30 to 50 feet out from that center line uh, would be considered MDOT right-of-way that we must keep clear from hazards and, and distractions. So anywhere past the right-of-way or um, in any area that they would like it that is uh, legal would, would be the answer to that. This is all political signage. This is not just the, the big wooden ones that people might see as like a road hazard. This is including the smaller ones that have the metal um, spikes that go into the ground. That's correct. That that includes um, all political signs, and and really not even there's there's also other types of signs that we see out there. But uh, you know our maintenance crews are, are charged with keeping that right of way clear, and we you know we typically mow a lot of these areas. So you know before mowing, our crews will have to get out there and pick up these signs. So what they do when they pick them up, uh, the signs that you mentioned with like steel or wooden posts, uh, those do pose uh, potential hazards that can cause harm to to our roadside workers and damage uh, equipment like their mowing equipment and they can even become projectiles if they're hit by these mowers. So what we will do is pick those signs up. You know, we will store them at uh, the nearest local uh, MDOT maintenance facility in that county for up to two weeks before they are being discarded. Anyone that placed those signs, if, if you've noticed that they're not there anymore, you know, you, you will be allowed to, to come pick them up from MDOT at the nearest maintenance facility. Uh, you can contact our office to find out where that would be. Um, and again, we will hold those up for up to two weeks um, at that local MDOT facility uh, in that county before it is discarded. You mentioned this could be a problem for distracted driving, but it also seems like it could be a pretty major hazard for people who need to pull off the road. 
That's true. Um, it can block. Yes. Yeah, so, so that area, you know, shoulders, and then, um, you know, some some roads that aren't big enough to hold shoulders. Um, you know, yes. If your if your car breaks down, or you have road issues, or you have to pull over, that kind of thing. Um, you will need to pull over in this right of way area of space. And yes, it can pose can be a hazard to uh, anyone that needs to use uh, that part of our roadway. So that, just another reason, as you said, you know, just to, to keep these areas clear clear of signs. And this time of year, especially before elections, you know, obviously we want everyone to vote. Um, you know, we want everyone to get out there and vote and, and do their civic duty. But uh, we also want to keep these rights of way clear from hazards and distractions. Distracted driving is, is at an all-time high right now, um, as you can imagine, with cell phone use being what it is, you know, everyone using their phone to drive around, uh, GPS. They're, I mean, they're using their phone for everything, music, podcast. I mean, so... We've got to. We're just trying to limit distractions with with them being at an all-time high right now with cell phone use, and these signs are another unfortunate distraction um, that can occur along our highways when you know we're traveling at very high speeds. Any kind of just short, even just a short distraction, just taking your eyes off the road for a few seconds can can be the distance of a football field if you're along an interstate or highway. So, um, you know, we want everyone just to stay, um, you know, distraction-free behind the wheel, and hopefully. We can get some of these signs picked up and, uh, you know, and limit the amount of distractions along our roads. Michael Flood is a spokesperson with the Mississippi Department of Transportation. Michael, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Kobe. I appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.